Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Great Voices. And it's right on four o'clock and it's time now for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'll be here until six this evening. Today, two friends in the US speak about 16 years of non-violent anti-war actions. It's Joy First from Wisconsin and Malachi Kilbride in California. We'll hear more about Duterte's killing machine in the Philippines with Peter Murphy and two interviews about Bougainville. First, present day and second, 50 years ago. Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia in the present and 50 years ago, Kevin Healy was on Bougainville. But this week, he's also here in Melbourne, so here's Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when Budget Day, a, a day of multi-orgasms for the Canberra Press Gallery, which knows the world starts and ends in the bowels of Parliament House. When big supremo scuttled them more life son announced only the caring business class and hayseed and sheep shit lot can be trusted to administer the healthy economy they have created. Not helped a lot by his great supporter, the true Blawazi Industry Profits Group's Innes Wheel the Axe, who warned against against porcine handouts to the undeserving because the economy was not looking all that healthy. But Scuttle them knew that just on this one occasion Innes was wrong and big economic guru Josh Prydem Icebergs would bring down a responsible budget. Uh, there's predictions of lots of handouts, Josh. Are you sure it's responsible? Absolutely. We're hoping it will be responsible for getting our bums back on the plush seats. Uh, there seems to be a lot of deprivation down Geelong way, Josh. A lot. We're in danger of being deprived of votes. On which the workers to whom he has devoted his life must be counting the days until they hopefully enjoy the benefits of a socialist government and the firm resolve of its supremo and would-be big supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition. Talk about unswerving conviction. Why, last week when the ACTU argued industry super funds should use their economic clout to force caring employers to be even more caring, uh, little Billy told them they had no right to bully poor caring employers. Celebrated by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, Shorten Ambition Slaps Down Union Super Bosses. And then, when this report claimed the socialist emissions reduction policy would cost the economy trillions, and the caring business class said it would destroy the economy as we know it, and we simply can't afford to save the planet, little Billy said he would consider cheap international carbon permits, cheap offsets, really important environmental benefits like planting a tree in Java. And this week, little Billy said the living wage, which caring employers say will destroy this country as we know it, we simply can't afford for workers to live, the living wage will be phased in over a period taking into account the capacity of business to pay and the potential impact on unemployment, inflation and the broader economy. 
Am I wrong, or doesn't that sound a lot like what the caring employers, people like Innes, always say? Oh, well, that's another one gone, and he hasn't even been elected yet. Oh, yes, the workers can't wait. Still, Scuttle them also displayed his resolve and conviction and principle in facing the same dilemma on beautiful, beautiful coal. Less than a year after baiting the, the destroy the economy socialists by waving a lump of the beautiful product in their face, but then last week, influenced by matters of principle like the polls, Scuttle them said coal was off the agenda brackets, at least until after the election, and then the hayseed and cheapshit party deep thinkers led by Barnacle said, no, 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 beautiful coal is not only on the agenda, but the public purse must finance new coal-fired power on behalf of the private sector to prove our commitment to market forces, and so this week, scuttled them and the hayseed and sheepshit lot got together to reach a compromise. Scuttle them saying, no coal. Barnacle and the gang demanding coal, and so they'd reached a compromise, with Scuttle them saying coal, and Barnacle and the gang saying coal. That's the sort of firm resolve a nation needs in its leaders. On which, a few weeks ago, we mentioned Trevor St. Baker, the planet, one of the biggest coal-fired power-caring business class contributors to society, who commented after a coal mine was rejected by the New South Wales Land and Environment Court on the grounds of its CO2 emissions and impact on the local Gloucester Valley community that this isn't the law as I know it. The law, as Trevor knows, it is that he can do what he bloody well likes. Imagine the Environment Court considering the environment. Well, following Scuttle Them's gutsy compromise, surprise, surprise. Trevor's Vales Point Coal Power Station is on the shortlist for a $15 million upgrade financed by the public purse to reduce its emissions by 1.1%. 100,000 tonnes, according to Trevor's managing director. 1.1%, 100,000 tonnes. We, we daren't calculate their total pollution, but the managing director was philosophical. Emissions abatement is emissions abatement. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Uh, then if you're so committed to emissions abatement, why haven't you already done it? Why doesn't the money come from you? After all, it doesn't matter where the money comes from. He looked at me as though I was as stupid as that judge who thought the Environment Court had something to do with the environment. Two one-notion heavies just happened to find themselves in the US of the UN of the US of the world, got on the source, and then just happened to find themselves in the company of some National Rifle Slaughter Association heavies and thought, while we're here, we might as well ask them for a few trillion dollars and offer to make True Blue Aussie a slaughterhouse as well. Although, why drinking sauce would make them do that, I've got no idea. But their supreme, their supremo, that appalling Hoonsun, blamed the real source, Al Jazeera, for filming their meeting. Shoot the messenger! Although that appalling is questioning the Port Arthur Massacre official version, a conspiracy apparently in which 35 people just decided to shoot themselves simultaneously. Then again, a number of government members reckon, nay aver, that the evil Greens and evil socialists are more dangerous than that lot of crackpots. And poor Scuttle them is torn between putting the crackpots last to win votes in non-crackpot country or not putting them last to win votes 
coaching crackpot company. As one of his predecessors said, life wasn't meant to be easy. Barnacle summed it up beautifully and perspicaciously. How do you decide who is the craziest? There are so many of them. He gave his normal in-depth political analysis. And it was pretty clear Barnacle wasn't including the one notion lot among the crazies. Nor himself for that matter. Speaking of crazies, US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor acknowledged that Zion's invasion of and occupation of the Golan Heights in Syria made the Golan Heights part of Zion, and we can now assume any country, particularly any country the US of knows is evil and full of the bad guys, which does not also recognize greater and ever-expanding Zion, will be charged under US of law and extradited. And any country that refuses to arrest and extradite them will be charged under your... Well, on on it goes. And then Donald attacked Russia for interfering in Venezuela. (laughs) No, no, I've got nothing more to say on that. What can we say? Brody boy made good and now Turak boy gone bad, Eddie McGuire people poor, hasn't got a racist, homophobic, sexist, bodiest bone in his body. Why? Reliable sources like his good, racist, homophobic, sexist, bodiest mate swear he hasn't. And every time Eddie makes a racist comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be racist because he's definitely not racist. And every time Eddie makes a homophobic comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be homophobic because he's definitely not homophobic. And every time Eddie makes a sexist comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be sexist because he's definitely not sexist. And every time Eddie makes a bodiest comment, he apologises and assures us he didn't mean to be bodiest because he's definitely not bodiest. He just likes a good joke, a bit of a laugh with the boys. And a double amputee attempting to balance her body on a walking stick while tossing a coin is the stuff of a good joke, a bit of a laugh with the boys. So for goodness sake, let's get off poor Eddie's back. And just an update on the family. We're pleased to note his brother, another Brody boy made good, the long-term member for Brody, so devoted is he to his suburban alma mater, still represents the people of Brody from his home in Brighton. But we're told on good authority that on a clear day with the right conditions and a giant, giant periscope, you can just see Brody from Brighton. Well, he's a working class boy at heart. He doesn't have to live with them as well. The Gender Solidarity of the Week Award to New South Wales Big Supremo Gladys Berra Jack Notgillian after becoming the first woman elected Big Supremo in New South Wales after campaigning strongly for the women's vote. Well, talk about solidarity. Her new, her new ministry has one less woman than the previous one. Nineteen men and a whole five women making her state number one in the whole country for the least number of women ministers. Uh, you cut one out, Gladys. Do, do you think six was too many? Look, quite simply and quite modestly, I knew I was worth ten, no, no, fourteen men. So the numbers are equal. On politics in that state, finally, this isn't my line, but I like it and not too proud to grab it, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses is running around his electorate in a bus carrying the slogan, a vote for Zali Stegall 
is a vote for Bill Shorten. Sally Stegall, of course, the former Olympic ski jump medalist, taking him on as an independent, and one of her supporters has counted it with, a vote for Tony Abbott is a vote for Tony Abbott. <laughs> I like that. Good afternoon. And that, of course, was Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like to hear more of Mr Kevin Healy, it'll be about 25 minutes past five, and you can hear about his time in PNG and then on to Bougainville back in 1969. It's 12 minutes past five and this is Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains. Also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Popong people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforgslash slash flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. Today I'm speaking with two friends who have been part of major actions of non-violent civil resistance in the US, both separately and together. They live in different states, Joy First in Wisconsin and Maliki Kilbride in California. And what follows are reflections on 16 years of resistance. I'd like to talk to both of you first about your time prior to your getting together in, in early 2000s. Can I ask you first, Maliki, what's your background and what were you doing prior to your civil disobedience work? Well, I was a very unusual child. Uh, when I was growing up in school and in high school, I used to go to protests against the Reagan administration's policies 
in Central America and against the uh, nuclear arms race. So by the time the Iraq war buildup was happening, I was continuing to go to protests against the U.S. policies with regard to Iraq. Can you talk about some of those those rallies and demonstrations you went to in those early years, what it was like for you? The first ones that I went to with regard to Iraq and also Afghanistan, the first one I went to was just a few weeks after 9-11. So there was a great fear uh, in, the, in the atmosphere uh, amongst people. And so I felt very vulnerable and uh, frightened going to these demonstrations because there was so much being said about terrorism and how we all needed to uh, fall in line and follow what our government leaders were saying. But I knew that that was wrong. And so I went to the protests before the United States invaded Afghanistan, and we're still there, as you know, with our friends. The Australians are there, too. So by the time Iraq was uh, targeted next, uh, I was in the streets protesting, but I knew that I had to do more. What was your family's reaction to you being involved in politics in this way? Uh, My family has always been very supportive of me. Were they involved in politics in any way? To, To a lesser degree, but during the 1980s, we all got involved in peace issues. Joy, what was your earlier life? Well, I grew up in a very conservative farming community, and um, I always kind of felt like a duck out of water. You know, I had different views of the world and of what was going on than a lot of people around me. But then I got married and I had children, and so it wasn't until later in life, actually, when I was 50 years old and I was working on my, my Ph.D. in women's studies, and looking at activism and realizing that as things were getting worse in Iraq that I really needed to join in and speak out against it and so this was in 2003 that I um that I came to that realization that I you know I really needed to do something strong to um to speak out against what was going on Is that the first time you both met in 2003 We didn't actually meet until 2005. So in 2003, I was doing actions in Wisconsin, which is where I live. Um, Just it's just north of Chicago, the state north of Chicago, and and Malachi was in D.C. doing actions there. But it was in 2005 that I I went to D.C. for the first time, and I did an action in front of the White House. And um, there were 271 people arrested in that action. And I just, I knew that this is what I needed to be doing with my life. That's when uh, Joy and I met in 2005 at the really big action in front of the White House. But interestingly, we were both arrested the same day for the first time, Joy in Wisconsin. And uh, I was uh, arrested at a die-in near the White House on the day of shock and awe. What was it like being arrested the first time? Joy? For me, it was really scary. I was, I was terrified. It was a, really a very easy experience. The police knew we were going to be there. They knew we were going to be doing this and they were cooperating with us, but I was still pretty terrified and I was kind of shaking and crying and, you know, um, and scared, but also feeling very much like this is, this is what I need to be doing that it wasn't enough anymore to go to 
and to go to protest and march in the street that I had to take the next step. How were you treated after you were arrested? Very, very well by the police. And, um, I mean, they basically just wrote us a ticket on the spot and released us right there. So we weren't even taken in. And so even maybe to say it was a, an arrest is kind of pushing it a little bit. It was, but, um, you know, it, yeah, so they, we were treated very well and released right away. Malika, can you talk about your ex first experience of being arrested and what it was like for you? Well, I too was very afraid. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Also, I at the time was a federal civil servant in Washington, D.C., so I was really worried that people from work or my boss would see me on television <laughs> when I got arrested. Uh, as it turned out, there was really no coverage of the protest that I was a part of on the day of shock and awe. And I since learned that, you know, the, the press really does not cover the anti-war movement to a, a, to a large degree. But I was arrested. It was a die-in. There were about 20 of us, and we blocked an intersection near the White House. And I was laying on the ground, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what happens if somebody gets really angry and they drive over us? So I looked up to see what car would be close to me that would be running me over, and it turned out to be a big SUV, and I thought, well, isn't that poetic? Uh, this is a war for oil, amongst other things, and I'm going to be run over by this big gas-guzzling car. Did you feel that people were hostile to you then? I think there was uh, at least a simple majority of people were supporting the war, the numbers were leaning towards supporting the government, although there was a very great anti-war sentiment. Joy, you were at that demonstration and Cindy Sheen was there. Can you talk about Cindy and her story? Yeah, the, the, the first time I was arrested in D.C., it was September 2005, and I was thrilled to, to be there with Cindy Sheehan. Actually, on Saturday, we went... I think it was Saturday, there was a great big protest and, um, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of people there. And I saw Cindy Sheehan at a distance. We were like, um, you know, quarter of a mile, I was quarter of a mile away from her. Stand, she was standing on the podium speaking and I, it was so thrilling to see her. Well, then on Monday, we did our action in front of the White House with 271 people and I and I stood right beside her and as all of you um, may or may not know Cindy Sheehan's son died in Iraq and she asked President Bush for what noble cause did my son die because he that's what he said that these soldiers were dying for a noble cause and she wanted to know what was the noble cause and she became a very powerful speaker against the war and it was just it was very thrilling to be with her and arrested with her and so when I was in front of the White House you know I was standing right beside her and we, we were arrested together so that was really amazing and very inspiring she's she's an inspiring person and she's continued that work right up to the present time oh absolutely yeah um, in October of 2018 she led a women's march on the Pentagon that was one of the biggest anti-war movement <laughs> events that I've been part of in the U.S. Um, in a number of years. There was maybe, I don't know, probably, I mean, a couple hundred people there. So 
the number of people at anti-war events now is way down from what it was in the Bush years. When Obama became president, everybody thought, oh, this is great. We've got this peace president. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. And a lot of people actually stopped protesting against the wars, even though Obama continued the wars and even increased some parts of them, like the drone warfare and that kind of thing. You see your actions, I believe, both of you, as your rights under the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. For us in Australia, can you explain what that means for you? First you, Joy. So we have the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances under the First Amendment. We've got the Constitution, and then they pass the Bill of Rights. And the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights is that we have the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. So we have the right to protest, to be out there speaking against our government when we think that they're doing something wrong. As you know, in Australia, the U.S. government has committed so many war crimes, you know, that it's just crazy, and we need to be out there speaking against it. We have the right to do that. Maliki, do you feel the same way? Is that your life? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. And the First Amendment does not just speak to the people's right to redress their grievances against the government, but it also spells out that we have a free press and the, the government cannot interfere with that free press. And that's why it is so important for people to support people like Julian Assange, who is a part of the free press internationally and who is being uh, persecuted by the United States. And, and I know that there is a, a great groundswell in Australia to support Julian Assange, and I would really encourage people to put pressure on the Australian government to get him liberated from the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK and have him brought home to be with his family and friends. Following 2005, what was the next action for you both? We were part of a group, Iraq Pledge of Resistance, which, which eventually became the National Campaign for Nonviolent Resistance. And um, as part of that, I think, our, I think our next action was in the spring of 2006 at the Pentagon. And again, Cindy was part of that, um, that protest. And we, we marched to the Pentagon, and a number of us climbed over the fence there and were arrested. They put up a fence to try to stop us, and we felt like we needed to go there and um, let them know that we wanted them to stop fighting the war in Iraq. Were you there, Maliki? Yes, I was. Um, I didn't risk arrest that day. I was working in a support capacity. That's when Maliki and I actually really started connecting, and Maliki was one of the people who lifted me up to get me over the fence. <laughs> And from then on, because you, you both live in different parts of the United States. But we still work closely together, and, and there actually are a number of people who we work with who live far away in, in different places in the United States who do come to Washington, D.C. to uh, confront and speak out against their, their government. What's it been like since Trump came into power? You first, Joy. 
you know, in, I mean, in, in some ways, it's not, for us, speaking out against the wars, it's not a lot different than when Obama was in power. We continued speaking out as Obama continued the drone wars, as he continued fighting in many different countries, and that's what we're doing as Trump is here. I think that Trump is hurting a lot of people here at home, in, and he as well as increasing um, wars overseas. But, um, you know, we're, we're kind of still doing the same thing. Our government is still committing war crimes, is still causing pain and suffering to people all over the world, and so we're still out there protesting against that. Yes, um, my response to the U.S. government's military and foreign policy has remained the same, whether it was uh, George Bush, the lesser, or Obama, or now Trump, it, it makes no difference. The, we're still against the wars. We're still against the torture of the United States. We're still against the militarism and the imperialism. And so very little has changed. Is there a particular action or a, a event that you most remember over those past 15 and 17 years? Yeah, um there, there is one action in particular that I found to be um, a very transformative experience. And, you know, as I started doing this work and started in, uh, being involved in these actions, risking arrest, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what am I doing and why am I doing it and is it effective? Well, in, in 2006, in November of 2006, we had a Republican president, George Bush. We've had a Republican Congress with a majority in Congress. But there was an election in November that year, and Democrats were elected to take over Congress. And there were so many people that said, oh, now the Democrats are in, so they're going to go vote against funding for the war, and things will be a lot better. And I, I wasn't sure that that was going to happen, but... So January, the Democrats took control of Congress. And then in March, I was out in D.C., and we were going to do some kind of an action and didn't know what we were going to do. Um, we decided eventually to go to the Hart Senate office building. So it's an, it's, there's about three, three Senate office buildings where our senators have offices outside of the Capitol, um, just on the next block over. And, so this Hart Senate office building has a big atrium area, and we went in there with, we were going to go in there with paper tombstones and read the names of U.S. soldiers and people from Iraq who have died since the Democrats took control of Congress. Well, while we're getting ready to go over, a friend of mine called, and he was sitting in the, the Senate gallery, and he called me and said that, that the the Senate just voted to continue funding the wars. And it just made it so clear to me that this is what I need to be doing, and there's no place else in the universe that I need to be but right here in the Hart Senate office building protesting against these Democratic senators who are continuing to fund the war. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, and this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'm speaking with... Maliki Kilbride and Joy First on reflections on 16 years of resistance. Was there a p particular event for you, Maliki? 
I would agree with Joy. That was a very important action that we were both a part of. And also what made it very special was that we did go to court and we defended ourselves pro se, which meant we had the aid of a lawyer, but we were able to speak in court and defend ourselves and get our political message onto the, the court record. And we were tr tried by a jury. And we were facing up to, um, I think it was six months to a year. It was, it was a serious offense because that's why we had a jury. And they found us not guilty. And so in a lot of ways that vindicated what we were doing. And so that made it even more important for us. And so that was a very powerful action and uh, the uh, trial by jury. And that's been important too, hasn't it, that when activists are facing a court that they have the right to speak to the judge or speak to the juries about their concerns and about the, what they see as their rights. Yes, uh, well, yeah. going pro se can be a very powerful experience. And we have a, a lawyer in Washington, D.C., uh, Mark Goldstone, who has trained us over the years very well. And uh, we, we, I don't mean to toot our own horn, but we get complimented uh, quite frequently by the judges for our abilities in the courtroom. Have some of your co-workers on the activism scene actually been jailed? I know you haven't, but have they? And, well, we've been in jail overnight, and um, we've been, Malachi and I have both been in jail for about three days is the longest that we've been in jail. But um, there's a group here in the United States called Plowshare Activists, and they've done a number of actions over the years, and they can get six months to two years in jail. And Malachi, I don't know, maybe do you want to talk more about that? Well, the, the most recent uh, plowshares action uh, was last year in Georgia, and they are referred to as the Kings Bay Plowshares. And I believe they have a website, Kings Bay Plowshares 7, with the number 7. And uh, most of them are Catholic workers. About three of them are still held in jail. They haven't either chosen to accept bail or on one of them, Father Steve Kelly, he just was not allowed to get bail to, to leave. And the others, for personal reasons, uh, family uh, reasons, uh, have been out on bail uh, for the last many months, and uh, they still don't have a trial date yet. But they went on to a uh, nuclear arms facility, a military base in Georgia, and uh, ha had a symbolic action, which was on the date of the uh, commemoration of Martin Luther King's assassination, and that's part of the King's Bay, Martin Luther King's uh, Jr. Uh, that's the connection they were trying to make at that time. But a number of them have been in prison over the years, and other plowshares actions, which go back to 1980, uh, have had, I think, hundreds of activists who have been jailed for different lengths of time. Would you both become involved in actions like that, or that's not the, that's not the way you do it? I really support what they're doing, and and their name, the name Plowshares, comes from the verse in the Bible that talks about taking their swords and and hammering them into plowshares. And, but um, you know, right now, I don't think that's something that I would be doing in my life. 
I can't say no and I can't say yes. It, it is a great sacrifice that these activists do when they participate in a plowshares action. So, you know, I, I was led to my first arrest. It took a long time. And I know that the process that the plowshares activists go through is, is a process of sometimes more a year or more of discernment. It's a very serious thing. Many of them have families and other commitments in life that they are potentially giving up for a period of time. But we also have to look at why they do it. They're doing it because nuclear weapons pose probably the greatest threat to all life on the planet, you know, entire echo side of, of the planet. So I can see why they do it, and I can understand their commitment, and I don't know if I will ever be at that level or, or not, but uh, well, I'll just have to see how I'm led in this, in this world. And also, by the way, there are Australian plowshares activists too. <laughs> yes, definitely. Now, talk about some of the people that you've met over those years of activism, people you admire most, who you've seen as a sort of mentor for the work that you've done. Joy? Well, I look back to the Berrigan brothers as some of the first people who were doing this kind of work, Dan and Phil Berrigan, who in the early years of the Vietnam War burned draft cards. They were part of the Catonsville Nine, and that was a very famous action. They've been very, very inspirational all over the years, and Howard Zinn is another big hero of mine. He was actually a professor also, and and um, not maybe a professor more than an activist, but he did do some actions, and he's written a lot of great things about this, and you know, you can find a lot of very inspirational quotes from him. I guess those are um, Dorothy Day, of course, is um, someone that we look to. And imagine also, Joy, that you've made a lot of friends along the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you, I would um, leave my family in Wisconsin and fly out to D.C. And, you know, when I first went out there, I didn't really know anybody. But, yeah, you become so close to the people that you do this work with because... You know, you are taking a lot of risks, and you have to be close and trust each other, and it's become like my second family out there. Maliki, coming from California, what's been your experience with people that you've looked up to and people that you, you have followed through those years and friendships you've made? You know, I've developed a real community of friends over the years in this type of work, and it, it is because... Of what Joy said, you know, you're a part of sometimes a very intense experience and you have come to trust these people and and care about them very much. But I I would agree with Joy about the people who, you know, we look up to and we follow in the footsteps of. But I would also add that I am very moved by just our fellow activists who aren't famous, aren't well-known, people who live very ordinary lives and do very extraordinary things with regard to their resistance, their nonviolent resistance to the war crimes and the other crimes of our government. Have you also met with returning soldiers or military from Iraq or Afghanistan and become involved with their anti-war activities? 
we have some very close people who are with Vets for Peace, for example, or Iraq Vets Against the War that we work with. And, yeah, it's, it's great to have them as part of the, the group. I'd imagine that they face a lot of problems if they come out and go against the war effort? Not really. I don't think any more than any other activists would, but, um, you know, I, I know that there's a couple of guys here in Madison that, in Wisconsin that I know really well that just still have a lot of serious problems. They were in the Vietnam War and, and still suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that because of being in the war. Maliki, do you have ex-combatants that you are friendly with? Well, yes, uh, I, I know people, again, through Veterans for Peace and other veterans who've been to Iraq or Afghanistan who are in the movement uh, opposing the ongoing U.S. wars. And I think, I think anyone who speaks out against the militarism of the United States faces, you know, criticism or some kind of blowback. But I think the veterans speak with a certain amount of, of credibility because of their experience. And I think a, a lot of people who would disagree with their stance against U.S. policies with regard to the ongoing wars would give them a certain amount of credibility. When you use the term militarization of the government, what do you actually mean? Well, I think, you know, over the many decades the United States has become this great military empire. It is the most powerful military empire in history. And so even now we are seeing uh, the latest proposed budget of the United States under Trump. The military budget is again, uh, once again, expanded with the discretionary spending going up even more than what then was originally requested by the Pentagon generals. And you just look back over the years how the, the military budget has grown and grown, and the wars have expanded, the occupations, the military bases all around the planet. So we have a militarized government. Could you also say that you have a militarized society? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The violence that we have overseas is is definitely reflected in in our society, you know, in the police forces and you know, in, in the gun violence around around the country, um, it's definitely a big issue. And you're looking at a society or a, a an empire of America which is in decline. Many people say that makes it much more dangerous than what it was before. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, when you travel around the United States, you see the poverty that really exists. You know, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, the heart of the empire, or one of the hearts, I suppose, it, it's a bubble. There's a lot of affluence. But outside of the great cities like uh, Washington, D.C. or New York or Los Angeles, you really see the poverty. But there's also poverty in these places. Right now I'm speaking to you from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm absolutely shocked at the homelessness and poverty that I'm seeing in this uh, great uh, metropolitan area. And it, and, and it doesn't have to be that way.
and it's because we are neglecting the needs of people over the expenditure uh, for war and more war and the, and the last wars we've had. And Joy, what do you experience in Wisconsin? In terms of... Poverty, unemployment. Yeah, um, there's definitely poverty. I actually, I live in, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is the capital of Wisconsin. It's supposedly a very, very liberal city. And so you would think that, you know, there would be um, a lot of, you know, that that people would be affluent. And there definitely are the people that are affluent, but there's huge pockets of poverty. And as for a real, for a liberal city like we're, we've got the reputation for being, there is an incredible amount of racism. And so it's, it's not the great place that, that they would like to think that they are here in Wisconsin. <laughs> Can I ask you both finally where you see your activism going in the near future? Go ahead. Yeah, um, I feel very called to do this work and I'm going to continue to do the work, the nonviolent civil resistance, speaking out against the crimes of our government. And I think that it's, it's just really important to also work to bring more people into this. And we've got, um, our government has ways of trying to keep this information from the public so people don't pay attention to all the wars we're in and don't really understand all the suffering going on around the world because of what we're doing and and so to you know try to help people see that information and and to join this movement and work to end the wars of the u.s government is what i'm going to continue to do and maliki yeah, I think I'm going to continue doing the same thing that I've been doing the last many years and um, hopefully trying to figure out ways to urge people to get involved in resisting war. And so here in the United States, I try to uh, encourage people to find ways to, to protest and, and resist. And I would also urge the people in Australia to resist the uh, you know the pivot that the United States is, is trying to do in Asia. We have to short circuit any war that would happen with China, and we have to figure out ways as regular people to say we are not participating and we're not cooperating with war. We want to be friends with all of the people on this planet. Okay, well that's all I have for both of you. Is there any last comment you'd like to make? Well, a, a number of years ago, Malachi said to me, once you know, you can't not know. And it just really struck me that, you know, I know what's going on and I can't not know it now. And so in some ways, you know, I, I have, of course I have a choice, but in some ways I, I don't have a choice. I, you know, we, we just, we have to continue to do this. Once you know, you have to continue to speak out and to fight against this. Maliki? I'm fine. <laughs> I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, all I can do now is say thank you so much to both of you for joining in this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. I was speaking there with Joy First from Madison, Wisconsin, and Maliki Kilbride in California, talking about their long term. 16 years together activism 
in the anti-war movement in the United States. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. In July last year, Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte warned the public during his third State of the Nation address that his two-year war on drugs would become even more chilling in the coming days. At that time, an estimated 25,000 people had died. Fast forward to April 2019 and the killings continue unabated and spreading to all parts of the Philippines. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist in Sydney. Peter, you're involved with human rights and trade union activists in the Philippines. What are they telling you about the current situation, who are those most at risk of extrajudicial killings and arrests? Well, I think there's two uh, distinct groups, but there's a bit of merging happening between them now. The first group that's uh, extremely vulnerable are poor people uh, who aren't politically organised or anything, who are really in the informal economy and uh, in, in very, very poor quality housing, uh, who may be associated in some way with uh, illicit drug business. They might be like a tricycle rider who, who takes speed so that they can stay out on the street for 18 hours a day to try to get some money. But uh, under President Duterte, there's, there's basically an order to kill a certain number of people, like a quota. The lists are drawn up between the police and local government officials and uh, then either police or people contracted by the police to enter those communities generally in the night time and, and execute the people on the list. You know, even children are killed, people of all ages. So uh, it, it's a, a terrifying thing that's been going on now for almost three years. And the body count is huge. It's somewhere around 25 to 30,000 people. So you can see that there's a, a hugely, there's a huge number of people being murdered by the state and uh, that the, the level of fear in the community would be massive. And of course the, the absolute destruction of uh, communities and families goes along with it. The other group, people who have been subjected to political assassinations for decades and decades. They are trade union uh, organisers and leaders, peasant uh, association leaders, and then the, the lawyers, priests or clergy, local government, like councillors, elected people, who play a role in 
trying to uh, assert people's rights to jobs, to decent housing, to an education, and so on. Journalists is, is another group, in, you know, been obviously targeted in, in this uh, section you know, of uh, repression that's going on. Um, but because the blanket term of uh, war on drugs, you know, it's suspicion that somebody is somehow involved in the drug business is enough to get you killed. Um, it's easy for um, people in the second group now to be also assassinated in, in the systematic way that the first group is. And this just last Saturday, so the 30th of March, there was such a, an event in Negros Island when 14 people were killed in the night in three different towns um, in a systematic, you know, one coordinated operation of uh, special police units combined with uh, military units. It's, it's only a few days old, this situation, but um, in, in at least two of the cases, the uh, armed forces entered the homes at night time, threw out everybody else, that is the women, the children, and then the men who were left behind were killed. There were three father and son situations where they, they were killed and uh, two others uh, in, in just one town. And these are all people associated with the local peasant association. So it's a calculated political repression of the standard style that's been going on since Marcos and before. Was there an inkling at all about or before Duterte won this government, that this might happen when he got in. He was known, wasn't he? He carried similar policies in Mindanao. For instance, in my case, I, I really didn't have any real apprehension about Duterte when he became the president. I hadn't really heard any bad stories about him uh, in his long tenure as the mayor of Davao City. But within a few months, yes, you know, even someone like me was told, oh, no, he, he actually did run death squads in, in Davao, and uh, he's uh, a typical, uh, actually he's not typical, but uh, people would say he's a typical traditional strongman political leader. In, in fact, he isn't typical because he's, he's a very rough mouth, sort of street thug style guy. Even Marcos didn't behave like that. So you know, he, he is a bit of a new phenomenon, and I think uh, he pitched himself to the people in the election in 2016, you know, as a as a sort of a man of the street rather than a man of the elite. There were these sort of lurid threats about filling Manila Bay with dead bodies, uh, you know, in the drug business, but uh, it was so over the top that I was horrified by it. But I didn't think he literally meant it. But it's obvious now that he did literally mean it. And um, so looking back at why was someone like me misinformed or uninformed, it's to do with the local politics in Davao, that it was a, um, a city where there was a lot of armed violence in the 1980s, you know, from warlord-type people, from gangs, and also from the New People's Army. Duterte sort of made peace in Davao by negotiating or mediating between the different rival armed groups and getting them to agree not to, not to do things. And in exchange, he would take care of some of their interests. And, of course, for the people on the left, one of their interests was just not getting killed by a death squad themselves. So I think that on the left there was a big error in that uh, the uh, other really 
glaring problems with uh, Duterte's policies in Davao were just, you know, put under the rug because, you know, he gave them a respite from death squads. Occasionally he also spoke out against the US military. So there was a few other political reasons why the, the left went soft on him, but now they're suffering for that miscalculation. You've spoken before about the politics of the Philippines where ruling families seem to take it in turns to have their turn. What's their assessment of Duterte? The, the pattern over the last uh, 40 or 50 years has really been uh, the Marcos bloc against the uh, non-Marcos bloc of the elite. Where the non-Marcos bloc was the Liberal Party plus then uh, the Aquino family and there's a few other elite families on that side. You can see that the previous president, Noinoy Aquino, he came from that side. Several, several like the current vice president, she's from that side. And I guess uh, President Estrada came more from the Marcos side. So there's been a bit of a seesawing since uh, Corazon Aquino stepped down. So Ramos was from her side. He had been with Marcos's uh, martial law administration, but uh, had broken with that in the 1986 upheaval. So after Ramos's presidency, we had Estrada, who, who was forced out by the people in another people power event. But then he was replaced by Arroyo, who allegedly came from the more liberal side of the elite, but uh, she turned out to be, you know, as vicious a murderer as, as any of them. She then was replaced by Aquino, that is the son of Corazon Aquino. And then he's replaced by um, this Duterte, who's, who's really the Marcos side. Marcos, he arrested and tortured and seized the property of quite a few of the wealthy families. There's a great bitterness passing through these next generation from that experience. But, uh, yeah, I guess that, you know, there's a huge anger and uh, it's focused on the fact that Senator De Lima is now in prison. She's certainly the most vocal voice from that side of the elite against what Duterte is doing. The, the trouble for someone like me is that the trade unions, the peasant movement and so on were in the end repressed pretty violent, very violently by both wings, both the Marcos side and the non-Marcos side of the elite. There's a little bit of room to manoeuvre for the people between the two camps, but not much. And then there's what's happening in the areas of mining, because that's a big issue in the Philippines. Mining is a very destructive industry all around the world, um, but in the Philippines, the mining resources are located on the lands of uh, farmers or indigenous people. You know, the extension of mining operations or the extension of plantation operations is actually a land-grabbing process and therefore a, a, a point of pretty severe social conflict. This, this is the, the actual underlying issue in a lot of the killings that's going on in the countryside. So yes, the war on drugs is happening, but, uh, mainly in, in urban areas. In the countryside, it's uh, the indigenous leaders, the farmer leaders, and their supporters in the human rights sector who are getting killed because of the you know, pushing for more and more land to be handed over and therefore displacing communities which have lived on these lands for many, many generations. 
it's a similar thing, you know, that we in Australia can understand with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What Duterte is saying now is to the people in Mindanao, where he has already had martial law for nearly two years, let me take care of things for you. I will organise all of the uh, investment and development in your lands and uh, you know, I'll make sure you get paid something. He's really demanding with the army and vigilantes and militias backing him that the people just stop uh, resisting the encroachment of big business into their lands. Can you talk about red tagging, how widespread that is? Well, I think that that's, uh, again, a long-standing pattern in politics in the Philippines that... The resistance comes from uh, farmers and workers, indigenous people, is against the interests of the elite, whichever camp. And it is uh, largely organised by uh, the communist movement. So the New People's Army and the Communist Party of the Philippines are the sort of organised core of resistance to the you know, hopeless uh, social system in the Philippines. The thing is then anybody... Who in the in the country who says anything about the rights of people? That is a very simple rights that we would enjoy of um, the right to freedom of speech, to freedom of assembly, of, of association, to speak out, especially to be able to criticise government policy. It's it's uh, routine for the military, especially, or the police, to say, well, if you if you disagree with the government, you must be a communist, and if you're a communist, we're going to kill you. So right now, Duterte has even said whole universities are run by the communists. That is the deans, the, 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 the uh, professorial board, as well as the student organisations, are all enemies of the people, and they're all, therefore, targets. He said that the, the trade union of the teachers uh, are reds. He's said that uh, the, the, the general, like the national level union centre, KMU, are part of the Reds. So it's basically anyone who's actively organising has already been ta- tagged as Red by Duterte. And he's, he's really giving um, pretty scary, violent speeches about the need that, to kill all these people. Plenty of people are being killed, you know, so, so there is definitely a sense of... Uh, huge apprehension across all sorts of, you know, different people, among people who normally don't agree with each other. They're tending to come together now to defend themselves against the threats from Duterte. And in some areas there's actually signs up showing who is being tagged or which group is being tagged or which individual is being tagged. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, There's in particular, again, in Mindanao, it's something that Australians find very hard to grasp, but uh, one church in particular, but also a human rights organisation, have been tagged in this sort of very prominent way, that is on uh, roadsides, on uh, fences that are very uh, obvious in public, especially on highways. You know, it's written up uh, the name of a bishop, Bishop Ablon equals NPA, or... IFI, which is the initials of his church, the Independent Church of the Philippines, equals NPA or equals CPP, or Karapatan equals CPP, KMU equals CPP, KMP equals NPA. These things are in big red letters, generally painted up with a handbrush, 
and uh, often they're painted up within you know 100 meters of a military camp so pretty obviously actually they were painted up by the military and certainly the military are turning a blind eye to whoever is doing it so um it's it's uh, you know an obvious threat that's is very menacing and uh, so i think last week the independent church of the philippines had a meeting of all of its bishops of the whole of the philippines in in mindanao issued an open letter to president duterte to stop this red tagging of their bishops and uh, of their church you know we'll see what happens next you know but i i, I think that uh, you know some of these uh, bishops and priests uh, are likely to be killed and un- unless there's some sort of counter pressure quite strong counter pressure put on duterte's administration and i think the international community has got you know a role to play in in that pressure and that's peter murphy who's a trade union and human rights activist in Sydney and I'll be playing the second part of that interview on the program next week. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. There is public outcry in the autonomous region of Bougainville, PNG, over the introduction of three controversial mining bills, including a bill to make amendments to the current Bougainville Mining Act 2015, which ostensibly will strip the landowners of their rights and ownership of the mineral resources, whilst bypassing safeguards, protection and procedures for the landowners. Also recently, the Bougainville President, John Momus, has been speaking about his decision not to renew the mining lease that the Australian company BCL has been holding in the Panguna area. And concerning the Bougainville referendum date, the autonomous region was due to go to the polls in June, but the commission overseeing the referendum is reported to have decided to postpone until October. I'm speaking to Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia, which works towards economic justice and accountabilities for communities in the Asia-Pacific and has been working with the people of Bougainville for many years. Look, we can't talk about the mining laws and other issues in Bougainville without reference to that disastrous Panguna mine. Can you as briefly as possible outline what the mine meant, both for the people and their environment? It was not popular from from the very start in the early 70s when it was you know, essentially forced on the people of Bougainville by the colonial Australian colonial administration. Bougainville got its independence after that, but um, the PNG government took over the operation of the mine in, in collaboration with Australian company, which was a Rio Tinto subsidiary, and it was in, it was very unpopular, and and there was attempts you know by the local people to 
expressed their discontent peacefully, but they were ignored and eventually led to a campaign of sabotage, which was repressed, and then finally to the Civil War, which was the most damaging civil war in the history, in the, in the recent history of the Pacific. And, you know, we still don't know how many people died, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 from the Civil War and the resulting naval blockade, uh, which went from 1989 to 1997. And there was a peace agreement, peace negotiations and a peace agreement um, after that, so it, it was. It, it's. It's and not only that. The tailings were not properly stored, and the um, disposal of tailings into the Java River and in, in, in Bougainville have caused, you know, serious environmental destruction, which, which may be getting worse with age as as the chemistry gets worse. We don't even know how bad the damage is. So, you know, a really horrific scar in the sort of psyche of of the of the Bougainville people. And of course, there's the displacement of the people and the fact that a whole generation of school children didn't go to school. That's right, yeah, because of the Civil War. You know, everything stopped. You know, the, the blockade made it very difficult to get essential medicines. And, you know, there were some real interesting stories of resilience from that time just to get through it, but certainly um, you wouldn't want to have to go through such such things in order to in, in you know in, in any situation so look it's a really sad story most australians don't know about it if, so i suppose if you live through it you might have some sort of hazy re- re- recollections of it but not only was australian company involved but australian defense forces involved in helping the counterinsurgency operation which in the early years was involved in serious human rights abuses you know there's stories of helicopter gunships you know firing on on people and all sorts of horrible things and there's never been a real proper truth and reconciliation commission and, and certainly no reckoning in Australia for what our policies contributed to nor the mining companies and there's been a push in recent years to reopen this mine particularly by mm. Momus the president uh, for since about 2011 or so the president of Momus has, has been arguing that Bougainville needs mining generally and, and, and the Panguna mine which is the, the mining question reopened for revenues to make Bougainville economically independent we've certainly questioned that most most specifically in our report in September last year which was a long um, examination of whether the argument that mining is going to bring prosperity is it really adds up and then the other part of the report is sort of promoting or talking about other other options like agriculture and fisheries and so on and and uh, I mean in our opinion Bougainville is going to be dependent on aid whether it be from PNG or from international donors for for a long time um, in the future so the uh, to talk about economic independence right whether or not there's mining so to talk about economic independence right now is just it's premature but certainly whether the costs are worth the you know quite arguable benefits from large-scale mining, given the limitations of how much, how many mining revenues end up going back to the people, as we've seen in PNG and other places, is, is really the, the heart of the question. Yeah, it's hard to think about one country that's a developing country that's actually benefited from mining. It really is. Uh, probably the only uh, the exception that proves the rule is probably Botswana, but that, that's a very specific case because of the the, the way that the diamond sector has been set up and the, and the sort of the decisions that were taken by Botswana many decades ago yeah it, it really is very hard to think of a, a case that, and, and, and PNG is you could call PNG the Nigeria of the, of the South Pacific it's, it's sort of the worst case where we've seen sort of rampant foreign exploitation not just of 
of the gold and, and, and the copper, but also the, the deforestation that um, logging companies have wrought is just is tremendous and very, very sad. The proposed laws, what would they mean if they went ahead? So it's an amendment to the 2015 Act, which wasn't great, and, and we had concerns with the 2015 Mining Act because we didn't feel like it protected the rights of landowners enough. But I have to say that compared to the amendments, the Act is looking <laughs> almost angelic. It's, it's, what, what this essentially does is grant anywhere in, in, in the province, which you know may become its own country, of Bougainville leases to anywhere that's not already under lease to, 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 to a mining lease. And our estimates are that that could mean up to two-thirds of the province geographically would go to one company which would be jointly owned by the autonomous Bougainville government and a Perth-based investor, which is called Kubulus Mining. So um, and in this particular case, this company would be able to get these leases without any consultation from any of the landowners in any of the parts of the province that we're talking about. So the landowners would be, would be completely undercut and they would have no say in whether or not they were approving of this, which is not only a contravention of Papua New Guinean law, it's, it's a contravention of the, the UN right to free, prior and informed consent. So essentially their consent is not being asked, it's just been taken. So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, we call it a reckless land grab in our statement and really that's what it is. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a land grab by the government for control of resources. But the government must realise that it's gone against all those laws, international laws? Yes. How do they think they're going to get away with it? International UN law is, is obviously not enforceable. Uh, you know, it's really, you know, UN operates through a process of sort of countries sticking to the agreements, and as we've seen, many countries just sometimes just don't do that, including Australia, for example, when it comes to our refugee policy, we're in contravention of the UN agreements. So, you know, the, the countries still generally, you know, t- tend to have sway when it comes to if they want to do something, which is. Uh, undermining human rights or, or sort of international agreements. So that, that's how they can get away with it. So the, po- the point is that it, it needs to be opposed uh, in Bougainville by the Parliament of Bougainville. Otherwise it will, will happen. And once it's happened, you, the only way to reverse it would be a, a new government c- coming in and reversing it. Tell us about this Perth Mining Company. Well, we don't know much about them. The, the CEO is a, is, a, is a guy called Jeff McGlynn. There's not really much of it. He was involved in horse racing and, and he has ties to the mining sector in WA. It's possible that looking into is whether there's a connection to a, a company called Carlia Holdings, which has leases in off Bougainville for exploration leases, for which is a different part. So the Panguna mine is in central Bougainville, but there's minerals in the north of the island as well. And it seems like there might be a connection between Mr. McGlynn's company and this Carlia Holdings just because... The proposed legislation is sort of a blueprint. For, uh, it comes from a blueprint that was written in 2017 by a consulting company, which is also based in Perth. And that um, has ties to a former Australian Defence Minister, a Parliament politician and Defence Minister, Mr Johnson. So whether there's a connection between the Kabulis and the Kaliar is unclear, but what, essentially what it would mean is that if there is, then this one company would, would have, you know, essentially access to virtually all of Bougainville mining rights. How does this fit in with the Bougainville peace process agreement? 
there's no actual connection in the sense that the peace agreement is planned. It, it, it's planned to, the, the, the referendum is, is planned to happen in June 15. There are concerns that PNG hasn't given, government hasn't given transferred promised payments to help finance the referendum process. That is certainly a concern, although we don't, we have, we, we don't, haven't seen a lot of details about exactly what payments are missing, but there have been claims that payments haven't been made. But there's no actual connection between that and these these amendments to the mining law. There, there were claims by the President that the mining amendments would, would help fund the referendum, which is just impossible because any mining leases that were granted would not be able to bring in any revenues to the government. They would Any investments that followed as a result of the leases being given would have to be going to sort of capital investment towards studying the mine, they wouldn't be able to go to royalties or revenues for government for the government purse. And in fact, no revenues would come to the government at, at least until the start of restart of production of mining, which is many years away. And even then, that may be a few years after that, because often there are tax breaks and stuff like that. So that you tend to see you know, five, six years before revenues come in. So there's no connection. But it's been argued by the government that there's a connection. What did the peace agreement say about cleaning up Panguna? That's a very good question, Jan, and I don't know the answer to that. But that is something that we're very interested in, and we would like to establish exactly how much damage has been done. Look, the damage is substantial, and the clean-up, it's not even clear whether it's going to be possible to clean up the damage in, in, you know, back to its original state. Exactly what a clean-up might mean, it really needs a really big study that would involve the new UN environmental program or, or, or the or Rio Tinto who's divested its shares in the company in Bougainville Copper Limited but still we would argue has moral responsibility to clean up the, the mine uh, the mine waste but in terms of how much it would cost and exactly what it would take that, that would require a substantial study which would you know, require significant resources. We're not just talking about Panguna, though, are we? We're talking about the whole length of the island, which is very rich in all sorts of things, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's it's not just rich in minerals. It's rich. It's very, very rich agricultural land, as we point out in our recent report and film. And as we were talking about earlier, mining revenues often don't find their way. They, they often tend to leave the country and go back to repaying foreign investors. Attention to the other indigenous resources, particularly the agricultural richness of the land, it, we would argue is more likely to bring benefits to the, the people of Bougainville rather than a select few in, in government and, and a select few investors. We need to rethink this question of richness, I think, and what really is, where really is the wealth in terms of the people, and the wealth is really in terms of the people, their know-how, their agricultural knowledge and their agricultural blessings, I guess. Well, that virtually kept the people alive during the long civil war, didn't it? It did, but, you know, there's still reports of people not getting enough nutrition and that sort of thing. So mm. there still should be development in the, in, the, in the small sense of the word. And uh, things can be done to improve, you know, cocoa. There's, there's a thriving cocoa sector, but it could be improved. There's other cases where other examples of crops like um, copra, there's coconut that's made of copra and, and stuff like that. So, and then, you know, the mix kind of, Agricultural economy is, is uh, I think, a real possibility if the proper investment and, and attention is given. What's been the, the people's reaction to this proposed mine law? The mining law amendments 
have not been popular. There was a sort of forum in, in Arrow, which is one of the few major centres, and it was really opposed by the people who went to that forum. I, I think I, I think as, that was sort of last week. I think as a result of that, it, it's gone to parliamentary committee, so it wasn't immediately... It, there was a danger that could have been just sort of approved straight through, but it's gone into a committee process, which means that there'll have to be a sort of a, a bigger investigation brought by the autonomous Spokenville government's parliament. So... At the moment, we don't know what's going to happen. It's still, if it happened, it may, it may be opposed. We, we just, um, we would certainly, it's just up to the people of Bougainville and their representatives to decide, but we would urge them to really look at it very carefully. Has PNG got a hand in all of this? No, we're not sure. We're not that we know of. How will this impact on the referendum, though, the, the vote? Hard to say. It's taken yeah, people's minds away from that? Yes and no. I, I think people are... From, from the reports we're getting, at least, uh, people are very determined to have to, to proceed with the vote and not wanting to be distracted from that. And where does that leave the autonomous Bougainville government? What happens then when there's a referendum? Depends. So there's two options. There's, there's independence and there's what's called greater autonomy, which no one's really sure exactly what that means, but that's presumably something like the status quo. So the autonomous government currently has, yeah, a sort of certain, you know, it's, it's what it says, it has a certain amount of autonomy in some policy areas, or it has autonomy in some policy areas, but not in others. For example, foreign affairs is still conducted by PNG. But, you know, so if independence is voted for, then the ABG will be able to get more, more powers, all the powers that PNG still has, it will, it will assume. It really depends on what the vote says in terms of what happened to the ABG. Well, I'd imagine that Momus is on the on the nose of a lot of people already, but he could get even more power. Exactly, yeah. I mean, well, yes, although the people want independence, so at least that's, that's what we're anecdotally told. We won't, there's no polling or anything, so we don't really know. But I think the point that I would try and make is that independent vote itself will obviously affect these changes, but in terms of the development choices made by Bougainville, they are... They could be done with or without independence, and they could be, development could be done in a sustainable way that is good for the environment and the people, or in a way that continues exploitation, environmental damage, and reopening the wounds of the past, whether or not there's independence. Whilst then it, lo- it looks quite possible that there will be independence, what happened to the development of Bougainville is, a, is in many ways a sort of separate question. So do we wait till June, or what's happening in the meantime? Yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to watch and wait, Jen. I mean, you know, there's lots lots of water to go under the bridge. People seem to think that the referendum will go ahead, but that's the assumption that we're operating under. But the, at the moment, just anything could happen. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Jen. I've been speaking with Luke Fletcher from Jubilee, Australia. Now to go back 50 years. 1969 was the year Kevin Healy went to Bougainville. Kevin, what was happening in your life at that time which resulted in a visit to Bougainville? I got very angry. on a. It was, it was a Friday morning in the newspaper. There was a photo of white Australian police, or white police working in New Guinea, directing black local Papua New Guinea police to bulldoze a village um, up at Panguna, or near the Panguna mine that was proposed at the time by Konzink Rio Tinto on the grounds that what was below the ground um, had been decreed by the Queen of England to uh, now be the property of Konzink Rio Tinto when they wanted, they were bulldozing people out of the village to put in support work, support 
artwork for the mine itself. It wasn't actually the mine site, but they wanted to put their own support equipment, etc., and um, and perhaps residences for workers or whatever. So they, had, they were moving the villagers out who'd lived there for eons and to, going to put them somewhere else in an area where, you know, the people had lived for so long and the people, not surprisingly, objected to being thrown out. And, of course, one of the ironies was that Australia, although it treated it as a pure colony of Australia, was in fact just guardian of it, in a sense, with the United Nations at that time. And we weren't even the predominant colonial power in, the, in, the, in a legal sense. We were in terms of practice, of course. So we were actually applying the laws of Australia, the laws of what happened here after the invasion, where everything was considered to be the property of the Crown, to PNG. And a, an irony, of course, also was that Cons and Rio Tinto, the company involved, one of its biggest shareholders, was and is, I think, uh, Her Majesty herself. So... She had something of a conflict of interest in that sense, I would have thought. But I got very angry at seeing this photo and thinking, how dare we treat these people like this? And how dare we just put capitalism, make capitalism so important that we can just throw people out of a village in Papua New Guinea, or in Bougainville in this case? That night, I managed to have a number of drinks with some mates. (laughs) It's a warning against um, drinking too much with your mates. And suddenly found myself on a plane to New Guinea, because I I expressed my anger to them, and um, they agreed with me. And, I, and so one of them said, why don't you go up and see what you can do, and, which is sort of paternalistic, but I thought, well, it'd be nice to go there and see what is actually happening in one of my more quixotic performances ever. And I said, but I've got no money. And a bloke said, look, I'll loan you the money. And so I said, OK, I'll go. And uh, next morning he rang and he said, I think I'll come with you. So we headed off, although we had some trouble because in those days, New Guinea was run by a department called the Department of External Territories, and the minister was a bloke called Charles Barnes, who was a military, military man with that military stature, the little moustache, tall. And, of course, I was then on the ALP executive. I was vice president of Young Labor. I was always active in the anti-war movement. So, And because in those days ASIO only attacked the left in Australia, uh, once my name came up for some sort of... Because you had to apply to the department for a visa to get there, red lights would have gone off everywhere, and the bloke I was going with would have set off a few red lights as well. And we had great trouble getting a visa to go there. So we, it took a few days. We had planned to go almost immediately, but uh, it took a few days because then we got Gordon Bryant, the member for Wills, who was active in, in affairs around PNG and around Indigenous affairs in Australia to intervene, and he intervened and got us a visa. So we, the following Wednesday, I think it was, we took off and headed for, um, for PNG. Well, it's uh, all very well getting to PNG. How did you then get to Bougainville? We had a fly from Port Moresby to Rabaul and then Rabaul out to Bougainville. But when we got to uh, Port Moresby on the way, we immediately contacted Albert Maori Kiki and the Pangu Party, which was a party then pre-independence that was fighting for independence. And we spent some time with them in Port Moresby. Then we went to a ball and stayed at a, a Methodist hostel or something overnight where John Caputin happened to be, who was also one of the active members of the, of the independence movement. And we spent some time with him. Then we flew out to Bougainville, although that was a bit hairy in itself because we copped a tropical storm over New England. And because there were lots of tradespeople from Australia going up there because they were being highly paid relative to, because of the location, Bougainville, uh, there were lots of carpenters and tradesmen going up and the plane was um, loaded with their equipment and we sort of were flying about diving board 
level above the uh, the ocean, and they pointed out to us that it was a DC-3 or something, I think, that these things didn't fly too well in clouds, so they had to stay under the clouds. And we suddenly we put down at Booker, and uh, we said, why are we here? They said, well, the plane wasn't staying up too well. <laughs> so they unloaded all this equipment, and we we sat out in the sun somewhere, and uh, the rain rain and sun, it was one of those mad tropical things, and a bloke scampered up a tree and got us some coconuts, and we sat there and had some coconuts, and it was quite pleasant. And then we got back on the plane. They said, oh, it should take off now. It took three times trying to start the engine. Eventually it started, and off we went. So we made it to Kieta, uh, which was the capital of Bougainville, uh, which at that time was there weren't even made roads. It was um, you know it was quite primitive in that sense um, as we'd see it, and there we were on Bougainville. And, um, but a lot of Australians had been there for quite a long time, hadn't they? They had plantations yeah. there, didn't they? Yeah, white planters. Yeah, the whites had all the arable land effectively. I mean, there the, was the old story where the whites took the arable land because uh, the experience up there was that it was amazingly dreadful colonial situation. You know, blacks had to call you master and, um, oh, it was just dreadful. Did the people there suffer through World War Two and the Australians in the area? Yes, they did. And we stayed the first night because we couldn't get into the pub because all these workers on our plane had booked the pub out uh, before they went up to the mine. We stayed with a white doctor from Queensland, a young doctor who was up there, hadn't been there long, and his wife. And I'll come back to that for another reason, but we stayed with them the first night. Then we got a, we managed to get into the pub the second night, although I stuffed that up, and I'll go into that story as well. We were warned by people both in Port Moresby and then when we got to Bougainville not to drink in the black bars because the while it was illegal technically, the bar in every pub the bars were segregated. And so we deliberately drank in the black bars and talked to the black people. And it's interesting because we got there, might have been after, it was a Saturday, Saturday we got there because that night there was a dance at the White Club. And in the afternoon a ship came in and we met a couple of the sailors and they, one from Fly River I think and one from somewhere else. And uh, one from Medang, if I think about it. We got chatting to them and, when, and we said, well, why don't we go up to the dance and, uh, <laughs> with, with the, the two blokes. And we got to the door and they looked aghast with two black blokes coming in the door. And they said to us, look, um, your friends might be uncomfortable. And we said, we looked at our friends, we said, oh, we'll take the risk. So we went in. And as it turned out, there were women who worked for missionaries or whatever and they danced with them all night and, you know, it was quite okay. But every time a mate and I walked across the dance floor, we went to a chorus of Kanaka lover, Kanaka lover, Kanaka lover. We'd only been there about half a day, and already we were being nailed by the whites and uh, because we'd drunk with the blacks and were talking to the blacks and had asked questions, obviously, about what's going on. There we were. There were major changes taking place. The economy was very much a barter economy on Bougainville at that time. But there were all these tradespeople coming in. What yes. were they building? Well, they were building the infrastructure for the mine and, and preparing for the mine and, and their own, presumably, the, the accommodation for themselves or for their workers, etc., which was going to go onto this village. Et but they were, they were all up there working. And every night the truck to Panguna would go up and take the workers back up the mountain when they'd come down to have a drink. But... On Saturdays, the tradition had been that the local people on Bougainville and the people on the islands off Bougainville bought their produce in their own, because it's a pretty subsistence sort of economy, both in fruit, vegetables, fish, etc. They came in and they'd have a barter system. They'd just barter, um, and everyone would sort of go away with what they needed. 
and there was a little bit of money in the economy, not much, like the white doctor and other whites, etc., would use money to buy goods, but essentially the locals bartered away, and that was completely stuffed up by the arrival of the, the workers, because the they'd send the truck down on Saturday, buy up almost all the stuff, and that, that led to both inflation in the whole economy, because um, they were buying it up, it led to shortages for a lot of people because they were buying it up, and they were buying it up to go up and feed their own workers, but at the end of the week they were throwing most of it out, or a hell of a lot of it out, because they bought more than they needed. So it, that was the first step in stuffing up the local economy totally, which had been a subsistence economy and people got on well and loved it. So you know, that, that was step one. Uh, but the other incident that happened that night, after the dance, we went back to the... We walked back and we went, got to the pub first and the boat, the boy, the blokes were on, was a bit further down the road. So we, we walked to the pub and the publican came out, a big, thick-looking bloke with thick wrists. And he looked like an ex-copper and probably was. And he got talking to us. And the, so the, there were four of us and him. So there's five of us just chatting outside the pub. And one of the black blokes, one of the, the local blokes, didn't hear what he'd said completely, and he said, "What did you?" Uh, he said, he "said Hey, what did you say?" And the publican just turned and pushed him to the ground, pushed him to the ground, stood over him with his big thick finger wagging at him, and said, "Don't you say hey to me. You say master. Can I speak to you?" And at that moment, I um, called him an effing racist, and at that moment, we lost our accommodation. Or we, I think he let us stay there that night, but after that we had to find other accommodation somewhere. And um, in fact, one night we were forced to go up to the Pangunum and sleep with the workers in the truck. Um, but it was, and, one, and then we walked around the village and another night we stayed at one of the, the village of Paul Lapoon, who was the local representative member in what was sort of a representative parliament at the time. So that was just a couple of examples of the way that the whites who were oh. in the Bougainvillians' own country yeah. were treating them. Yes, yes. Oh, colonialism all over PNG was just dreadful. Uh, as I say, in the street, most of the local people would look down and try not to catch your eye, but if they did, they'd master, master, and we, we loathed that, of course. As I say, the bars were segregated. It was a white colonial society. It had planters. Uh, uh, it was just, just absolutely dreadful. We eventually got a chance to go up to the mine and get a we had a bloke with a truck who'd take us up, and uh, we went up to the village which was being, which, which led to the, me going there. In fact, the village that was being bulldozed, and met the uh, leaders of the village and the people in the village and the young people in the village. And the young people then wanted to take us to the site they were being moved to and to other places. And so, as we got into the truck and they got in the back under the canopy, the Tropical storm hit again, these tropical storms, this massive tropical storm hit, and there were coppers on the periphery of it for obvious reasons, you know, because of these terrible people fighting and re- rejecting, etc. And as we left the village, or we were a fair way from the village by this time, but then the coppers chased us and pulled us over and booked our driver for overloading and forced the people in the back who came from the village to get out in the tropical storm and walk home just for pure bitchiness and and yet the trucks going up to Panguna every night for the mining company were absolutely overloaded but no action taken against them but it was just a just a piece of reprisal against these people because they rejected to having their village taken from them did you see examples of that their objection 
what they were doing? We didn't because the coppers didn't move in while we were there and do anything, but they told us all about it. I mean, that they were resisting and eventually they, they lost, of course, but they were resisting. And the other that thing that day was that the Java River, which is um, the top of the mountain there and runs down to the, to the sea, obviously, we drank out of it and it was incredible because it's, uh, we were there at a period of high, the, that time of year was really high humidity. I remember getting off the plane in Port Moresby at about one in the morning and hit you like a blanket. It was astonishing. And we drank out of the Java River and the water was clear, pure and cold, surprisingly, in that situation. Beautiful water we drank out of. And after the mine opened some months later, about a month after it opened, there was a photo in the media, in the, in the economic media, financial media, showing the Java River going out to sea. And there was about, it was just this viscous sludge coming down and this viscous sludge going about two or three hundred metres out to sea in a semicircle. And that, of course, that stuffed up the, the locals again in terms of the, their fishing and the, and the subsistence living. So that was the another, that was, that's, that's what always happens, of course, but it was a perfect example of the mining company having no concern for the environment or whatever, just dumping everything into the Java River, which had been perfect. It was wonderful. And what was the environment there, apart from the river? The vegetation? The, the vegetation the anim- was very much tropical. The uh, animals, the birds? But, uh, but yes, yes, and lots of birds. Didn't see that many animals while we were up there, but uh, lots of birds. I'm sure there were animals there. They just didn't come out when we were wandering around. There were, um, you know, lots of banana plants. In fact, during the tropical storm, the locals grabbed a banana leaf. And it was wonderful as, a bro- as an umbrella and just walked around with it. You know, the, the locals knew how to adjust to the environment, absolutely. I remember we went round with Paul Lapoon. This local member walked around to his village with him, which was about several hours' walk, or not sure several hours, it probably was a couple of hours' walk. And it was interesting because my mate, mate said to him, by the way, what did people do during the Japanese occupation here when they, uh, during the war? And he said, well, for a start, no one had any babies. They decided not to have babies while the Japanese were there until they left. And we said, how'd they do it? He said, oh, I'll show you. And as we walked around, he, he pointed to a plant and he said, women took that, and if they take that, they don't have babies. And we said, oh, yes, that was natural contraceptive. And we kept walking around to the village, and after a while, he, he just, middle of conversation, he just stopped. He said, by the way, they then take that one, and if they take that one, they're going to have babies again. So they've got some natural contraceptive and antidote to it, uh, which I believe they did have. I mean, I don't doubt it. Uh, and we spent some time in his village. Part of that also was that back in Kieta, in the doctor's house, it was a Glen Waverley brick veneer with lots of money being spent on on air conditioning, etc. And, of course, the locals, their villages are built to, to absorb the environment. So, and so the, the circulation of wind, etc., and air through their, their, their village, their cottages, etc., is just wonderful. The thatched roofs and, and you know, very, very clever one in terms of being able to to do that sort of work, which is which well another story I'll tell you, but secondly it, it it adjusted so much to the climate to the climate itself. But when we got back to Kieta, I said to the doctor, "What do you know about the natural medicines that people have here?" And we'd been there two or three days and knew about the natural contraceptive, and he never heard of any of it. He just didn't ask. All we did was Western drugs and Western medicine, and uh, he had no concern at all about the fact that the locals had a form of medicine and a form of, um, of well, you know, of, of cures and everything else, 
which had been going on for presumably eons again. What's changed? Well, what's changed? That's right. So, I mean, we've got the same here with our Indigenous communities. So that was that. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. And yes, the voice you are hearing is that of Kevin Healy. But this time it's Kevin Healy talking about events 50 years ago. Did you get a sense of how many people were moved out of the area where the mine was going to be? I'm not sure how many there were. There was a whole village, so it was, um, it would have been, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred or something. I'm not sure how many people. And how far away were they moved to? No, I moved a fair way away. It was, um. On someone else's land, obviously. Presumably, yeah. I mean, they, they chose some spot for them, but again, the Queen of England would have said you can move there and that's that and away you go. But absolutely outrageous, you know, the, and the consanguineo Tito could just be assumed to, to now own what's below their land. Did you see any instances of people organising against the mine? Talking to the villagers we did and talking to Paul Laput and others at the time, although he later became a member and I think he, you know, he became Sir Paul and like so many, he became part of the establishment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, talking to the locals, certainly in the pub, if you talk to the locals in the pub, they were all, you know, upset about what was going on to their, in their villages and in, the, in their land. The other um, interesting aspect of, of being in, <laughs> drinking in black bars, we were warned not to, and we were told that they'll, they'll bludge on you, and they're as lazy as. There were two things, they'll bludge on you and they're as lazy as. And the, the wonderful response by the local black, local indigenous people themselves was quite simple. They said, look, because the, those days relative to wages, but the, the, the whites who were going up there working were getting about $200 a week, which is big money at that time. And the locals were getting about $6 for exactly the same work. And their argument was, if you're getting 200 and I'm getting 6 you owe me a drink. <laughs> you know, which I thought was quite logical. And again, they said, in terms of saying they're lazy, they said, well, if you're getting 200 and I'm getting 6 I'm not going to work my guts out, am I? You know, <laughs> they, they just had it all sorted out to that degree. And, uh, yeah, and in fact, the story I was going to tell about earlier... When we were coming back through, I think it was through Rabaul on the way back, we ran into this bloke about nine in the morning, a white, a white carpenter who was pretty pissed at that time of morning, which was interesting. We got chatting and he, he talked and told us how lazy the locals were and how they, you know, they, you've got to, you've got to build them with a bit of wood every morning to get them to work, he said, this bloke, as he's drunkenly telling us. He said how lazy they are and they really, you know, they can't even bloody but a nail properly or something. And I said, how do you go attaching a roof yourself? But he didn't pick up the irony of that one, I don't think. He just uh, kept raving on. But uh, that was you know, a typical attitude, unfortunately. And I'm just wondering what the authorities thought of you two wandering round. Oh, not much. They didn't did like it. you get questioned? They didn't like it. Not really, although one of the nights we were... Des- again, it was quite muddy and quite wet and we were finding somewhere to sleep. And we went to, we went to a German Catholic mission that was there and we th- we said to them, look, we're happy to sleep on the floor. We just want to rip over our head out of this rain. And they just refused to take us in. Now, whether they'd been worded up about how dangerous we were or something, I don't know. But no, I would have thought, you know, a, a Catholic uh, missionary mob might at least give, put you a roof over your head. But no, they threw us back out into the rain. I think that was the night we had to get the go up to the Hanguna and stay with the bloody workers at the at the Tito site. I'm quite sure that nobody had any idea what that mine would actually mean for Bougainville. No, and they sorted it out themselves anyway. I mean, that's why I said my 
driving up there was a bit paternalistic in a sense, although I went there for other reasons just to see what was happening. But, but in the end, they took matters in their own hands and sorted it out, although with a bit of help from Gareth Evans down here, etc., our government didn't help them out too much. I think you'd have to say a bit more to it than that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. With their... Um, with their um, yeah. Were they in the helicopters, the yes. machine gun? Yes, in yes. The heli- we, we played a dreadful role in that uh, in that particular struggle for the Bougainville people. How long did you stay altogether? Oh, we were only on Bougainville. It's, we were in PNG for about two weeks altogether, and, and about half that time on Bougainville, I guess, the rest was talking to people in Rabaul and Port Moresby. And what were the people in PNG saying about what was happening on Bougainville? Interesting that, because... The local PNG police being used with the whites on Bougainville all came from the mainland. And the mainlanders called the Bougainville people blackskins and the, the people on Bougainville called the mainlanders brownskins. And they really did a divide and conquer because there was a diff- real difference there. And Bougainville itself, I mean, it's a classic case of how colonial boundaries determine things and create problems around the world as we're seeing in the Middle East and Africa and all over the place. And this was a classic case where the Germans had occupied Bougainville originally and, uh, and, and lost it. And Bougainville ought to, if, if, if Bougainville is going to be part of any country other than independent on its own, then it should be part of the Solomons because ethnically they're the same people, whereas the people of PNG are a different people in that sense. You know, again, it was that divide and conquer bit. But on the mainland, the people we spoke to, like Kaputin and Maori Kiki and, and those people, they were all sympathetic to what was going on and, and supported the Bougainville people against the mine. But beyond that, I'm not sure what the, what the mainlanders thought because we spoke to people who were concerned with politics at the time. So, yeah. What were the messages you went home with? Went home with the message the place needed to become independent. We needed to stop being colonial. We needed to let people not destroy their economy, not destroy their way of life. They with a delightful subsistence living in many ways, we were stuffing it up with white economics and uh, and mining, of course, has stuffed it up all over the place ever since the mines in PNG have just been environmental disasters. So that's the message I went home with. And in fact, we formed a group called the Free New Guinea Association when we got back. We called a meeting. And while we were away, Max Ogden, who then worked at Melbourne Union, later with the union and the ACTU, Max went and took out a miner's right, and went and dug a hole in the front lawn of CRA's office in Collins Street. Now, this is where the law is a bit difficult to follow, because in PNG, the law said that that Consent Rio Tito, which is now Rio Tito, of course, had every right to push these people off their village and to dig up the land and take over the entire, you know, virtually take, take over the island. While in Melbourne, Gibbon Max did exactly the same thing. He got arrested for trespass uh, and fined. So obviously the, the law couldn't quite sort out the difference there and between the two. Uh, but we contacted Max and uh, we formed, we called a meeting to form the Free New Guinea Association at which Max, the bloke I went up to New Guinea with and, and I, were the only ones to turn up. We, we, we met at the Metal Trades office where it then was. Then, being a journalist with the Murdoch Empire proved advantageous, because we then had we thought, well, no, we'll adjourn to the pub and have our meeting. So we adjourned to the John Curtin Hotel, from whence I rang, from where I rang, uh, the Australian, and next morning the front page said that more than a thousand people last night formed the Free New Guinea Association. So, there you are, don't believe what you read in the press. <laughs> 
And, but we did. But then we brought out people like Kaputin and um, Maori Kiki and a number of number of speakers. I don't, can't remember how we raised the money. Now maybe the unions paid, but it probably did. So um, up until independence, we went through till then, and we did bring out speakers to talk about situation in PNG, etc., and the need to get rid of uh, the colonialism. Another thing, Barnes was replaced eventually by Andrew Peacock as a junior minister, as um, minister for external territories. I was then, by that time, I think I was living at um, DMZ, the anti-war place in Paran, the community we had, and. Somehow one night the front fence of Andrew's house in Canterbury was next morning it said Minister for Racism all over his fence. Uh, and I remember Susan Peacock asking how anyone could do this to anybody and how terrible it was. I think it's safe all these years later to say that now. Uh, not that I'm saying I did it or anything like that. But um, yeah, the Minister for Racism, etc., um, etc. Et but uh, So we did form the Free New Guinea Association. The day we left Port Moresby, we, we spent the morning at uh, Albert Maori Kiki's place and Michael Samare was there, who is a Sir Michael, and at that time, it's interesting how people change because he drove us to the airport and we, going to the airport, we drove through the grounds of the, of the university and every house in PNG had a little hut at the back for the boy, the BOI, and the boy could be a, a woman of 80 or something. You know, They all had their servants, and they were called the boy. And as we were driving through the university, Samare said, and these are his words, after the revolution, he said, after the revolution, we will live there, pointing to the house, and Mr Barnes will live there, pointing to the boy's hut. So that was Michael Samare, circa 1969. Now, Sir Michael has been done for corruption, I think, since then, and everything else. So he's a good example of how power corrupts, unfortunately, and and what can go wrong with people, yeah. Just wondering what your thoughts were in the late 80s when, you could say, the shit hit the fan. Well, I think it was wonderful. I mean, it was great to see the local people take take control of their own destinies and, and throw this dreadful mob out who had, you know, totally destroying their environment. Now, much of the damage, I guess, has been done in many ways because of the changes to the economy and the subsistence living. But, but I suppose once the mine's gone, the river, go, river goes back to something like normal. It probably would go back to normal and people could still fish, etc. again. But I spoke you know. to someone who said that there's no guarantee that it will go back and it could even really? get worse as the chemicals change oh, that's over that they're time. In there, aren't they? Of course the they are, yes. Are yeah, that's there. a good point, yes, it's... Good point. Well, yeah, you can hope it goes back, but that's right. It's totally stuffed up. And as I say, when I was there, it was the, the absolutely superb, the Java River and wonderful, cold and beautiful water, yeah. And now we're hoping for a possible referendum. Yes, and... Um, Been delayed now until October. And, and will they have a, will the mine reopen? Um, and, of course, who will run it, etc. I guess. When, and also there's all these other mines that they're got their eyes on as well because there's a whole spine right up the island isn't there well there are all over the place and 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 what's happening in new guinea in the last year or so is that companies are now putting their not putting their tailings obviously i don't think consequently to put their tailings anywhere other than the java river but uh, when they're forced to have tailings dams at least uh, many of them are avoiding that by putting them directly into the ocean and one of the companies said it's in this deep area where it can't cause any damage. I mean, for God's sake. I uh, wonder if the fish agree with that and the crustaceans down there. But uh, So they're actually now 
putting their tailings in. You know, the, the environmental impacts of mining in PNG are just dreadful, but unfortunately for the country, it's probably one of the few major resources they've got in terms of income, etc. So there's all those conflicts that occur. But that's what they say about Bougainville. We get the people there say, well, there's plenty of things. There's, yeah. there's all the tourism, there's the, the agriculture, there's fishing, there's plenty of, course, of things of we don't is. need of course mining. Of course there is, and they have, a, they have and hopefully still have in some head and hopefully still have in some ways uh, a, a wonderful subsistence way of living, and uh, which, you know, once the mine arrived, began to, to unravel that and destroy it in many ways. Looking back 50 years ago, Kevin... Yes, 50. It is 50 years. That's right. That's right. How does that make you feel? Well, I'm thinking of the young blokes whom we, you know, spoke to and, uh, and who were thrown off that van, for instance, had to walk back. They'd now be old men and probably leaders of the community if, they, if they're still alive, some of them, of course. But yeah, so, uh, yeah, interesting, isn't it? But 50 years on and, 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 it's, and the struggle goes on. I mean, we were there in 69, uh, saying the mine shouldn't go ahead. They shouldn't destroy the environment and, people of Bougainville are still fighting the same fight. Yeah. Perhaps worth telling Jan a, a, a prologue to all that. Uh, after we got back, I was asked by the United Nations Association to participate in a debate with the then government whip, a bloke called Max Fox, who I think held the seat of Henty, but one of those seats around there. Uh, this was, of course, a Liberal government at the time. So we debated away, and I went first, I think, and I made the points I've been making here that really we, we shouldn't be destroying a way of life if, if people of Papua New Guinea want to change their way of life it's their choice but we have to give them that choice and not impose it upon them and leave people in something of a no person's land between two cultures as we've done here in Australia with our own indigenous people and I talked about uh, the one of the sort of life they had which was really very communal and and worthwhile, and um, and went on in, in, in that sort of vein, and, this, and how we were so racist, colonialist, etc. And Max, in fact, eulogised what we were doing. He, we couldn't have done anything better. He was absolutely magnificent. I'm not sure he actually used the word savages, but he might as well have. have. And um, he talked about the great things we're doing for Papua New Guinea and what we're bringing them: civilization, Christianity, all the thing, all those wonderful values, Joan. At the end of it, when he arrived, by the way, he'd come in with a bloke who had a looking very svelte, very urbane, with a, you know, the usual business looking man with a suit and the, the grey moustache and just looking absolutely that sort of conservative person. And when they came to move the vote of thanks, the chairperson said, I'd like to ask Sir Whatever, the Australian delegate to the UN, to move the vote of thanks, who turned out to be this bloke who'd arrived with Max. So, uh, he got up and he again talked about how, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't praise Max's speech highly enough. It was magnificent. It went to the guts of what we're doing for these people who need to be brought into civilization by us, etc., etc. But I've never heard it before because generally if you're moving a vote of thanks and you don't agree with somebody, you say, look, I don't agree with what you said, but I want to thank you for coming here and saying it. You put your case very well in the usual crap you go on with in, in thank you speeches. But no, no, I've never known it to happen before. He then said, but as for Mr Healy, I couldn't thank him for what he said here tonight, and I only hope when the next election is called, he'll be sitting under a tree in Papua New Guinea and not preaching this rubbish to the people of Australia. 
And <laughs> it was, so I thought, oh, that's interesting. And, but it, it backfired on him in many ways because the whole audience then rushed up. As soon as it was, Cher said, that's over, they all rushed up and told me how absolutely wonderful I was. And most of them, I suspect, would disagree with everything I said. You know, wouldn't agree with a word of it. But they, they rushed up and thanked me and said how wonderful I was. So it sort of backfired, but it was just an interesting prologue to the whole thing. I've never heard anyone before not at least say, well, you spoke, you know, thanks for coming or something, but no, he couldn't even move a vote of thanks, the poor man. And that was definitely Mr Kevin Healy reminiscing about a couple of weeks in P&G in Bougainville back in 1969, long time ago, 50 years, but he remembers it well. That's about all I have for today, but we'll go out with a couple of messages and um, Dunbar Law will be here very soon. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. In December 2017, Tanya Day proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. Well, that is all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.